When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I find it hard to even talk about silver linings just because of the level of suffering going on. But I do hope that some of the changes that will inevitably occur from this have to do with understanding that we're all in this together and that actually we can't live the way we have been. And the polarization of wealth is dangerous. We have to keep trying to look at possibility and a way forward. And that is really hard with the level of uncertainty we're all facing and the level of anxiety that we're all experiencing, admittedly at different levels, but it's you know, a kind of worldwide phenomenon right now. Uncertainty leads to anxiety. There's a lot of fear if we can hang on to hope and we can continue to look after each other, maybe, just maybe, we'll get through this and be better on the other side. That is best-selling author and human rights advocate Tara Moss. And this is episode 342 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is with Tara Moss. She's a, a best-selling author. She's a documentary f- host. She's a, a public speaker. She's a human rights advocate. She's an advocate for people with disabilities and chronic pain. She's bloody great at what she does. Um, more about Tara in a moment. Uh, if you like her, you can find her at Tara underscore Moss on Twitter. Firstly, what is this show? This show is called Better Than Yesterday. I'm just aiming to try and help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. Something that you hear on this show today will help you go, you know what? I might give that a shot. Or I might think about things that way. Or that, I never considered that before. And then today will be better than it was the day before. That's what I'm here to do. I guarantee you. You'll hear something you need to hear today. I'm here every Monday and Friday. Monday, I speak with a guest. Friday, I speak with you. Who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a TV host and a, a, a fidget twiddler thing guy with my right hand. Can you hear it? 
only just. The other one was too loud, so and Andy made me get a quieter one. But I got over this great kid who listens to the show. Um, Kai is his name. KaikoFidgets.com.au. K-A-I-K-O-Fidgets.com.au. It's really good. It's a really heavy roller that I play with in my hand. So if you hear a bit of a clinking noise whenever you listen to this show, that's my hands playing with stuff because my hands have to play with stuff. And Audrey, it infuriates Audrey. But I tell you, man, the other day when Wolfie, Wolfie, our son, our baby boy, uh, Wolfie is 10 months old. We have two kids, one's 16, one's 10 months old. Wolfie was um, crawling across the floor the other day. He won't crawl unless he's got something in his hands, both hands. All right, he'll grab two things and then crawl. And Audrey looked at him and went, oh, fuck, I've got another one. <laughs> so, yeah, there it is. There it is. Got your son. I'll buy you a little fidgety toy when you get old enough. How are you? Are you good? Oh, what else? I forgot to tell you what I do. I work on television. Sometimes I count roses. Sometimes I make podcasts. Sometimes I write books. Sometimes I ride bikes. Sometimes I lift things. Sometimes I clean up. Sometimes I feed the baby. Sometimes I do stuff in the yard. Sometimes I walk the dogs. I walk the dogs today. I had no idea that I could keep that much poo in them. Like seriously, I was like, a, it was a four bag walk. Like that blew my mind. Blew my mind. Anyway, how are you? You okay? You going all right? Did you get that thing done? Maybe you should start. What's the smallest thing that you can do to get towards getting that thing done? Just figure that out. Make a phone call. Text somebody. Get accountable and get started, and then you'll get it done. We'll get on the way to getting it done, at least. Strange times right now. Oh, boy. Very strange times. Are you focusing on what you can control? Remembering what's in control, what's not in your control? Being as helpful as you can to those people who are near you? Are you listening? Listening to what other people are saying? Are you reading? Reading things that you might not always read? Are you watching a social media input? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Be careful there. I've been back on the kettlebells this week, which has been really great. And I'm back on the Turkish get-ups. I'm, I, I fucked up my shoulder showing my neighbor how to do a Turkish get-up. <laughs> so I haven't been able to do one for a couple of months. But I'm back on the Turkish get-ups, which really are my favorite thing ever. Because I, I feel like a fucking Viking whenever I do them. Probably also because I'm listening to Viking metal when I'm doing them. But I mostly listen to Viking metal on the bike when I'm on the heavy intervals. No, but I like to listen to heavy things when I'm lifting heavy things, whether it be Viking metal or um, brain things. So this week I was listening to, um, oh, did you listen to that Cops podcast? Did you check it out? Far out, dude. This week I listened to Sam Harris's exceptional look at the data on police shootings in America. I rate Sam. He's a good thinker, critical guy, interesting fella. So I lifted some heavy things while taking in Sam and just being with the cognitive dissonance, which was good. I recommend it. Lifting heavy things while you listen to heavy things. It's good. It's good practice. Gets in there in the end. Um, Sometimes I go back and listen to the podcast or or the book or the chapter or whatever it is a couple of times just to make sure it sticks in there. But it's good. My body felt really good afterwards. Got to pack them in when the baby's asleep. I tell you, if the baby's having a nap, I get down there, put the little baby monitor down, go. There's no faffing around because when that boy makes a noise, I've got to get up there. It's good. It's good, inc- good incentive to get the workout done. So, yeah, I hope you're doing okay. 
I do have a Viking metal playlist on the website somewhere, osherginsberg.com, just go there. Thanks everybody that did get in touch, by the way. Thanks everyone that wrote me nice things about the vaccines episode on Friday. I appreciate that. Send email at gmail.com. Thanks everyone that had my back on Instagram as well. I really appreciate that. Sometimes I get a little lost, but I really appreciate, I really, really appreciate that because, um, you know, I think in the same way that when all the bushfires were happening over summer, and people were thinking of me and dropping me notes going, mate, I hope you're, I hope you're okay. Actually, I was more okay than I've been in years because I was seeing in everyone else's face what I felt inside me for so long and I didn't feel so alone and it felt a lot better. Similarly, when people come on the Instagram and they're swinging through the window and they jump in and join the fight and they go, yeah, man, and like, oh, thank God I'm not alone. It made me feel good. So thank you for those of you who jumped in on that. I appreciate it. Right. I'm excited about getting you my guest today. Because she's really cool. It's a super cool chat. But before we get there, because Tara Moss is a, is, a, is a powerful woman and she's a driven human being and she's got an excellent track record of not taking shit from anyone, which I adore. Before we get into my guest, if you're into hearing inspiring stories from powerful women, there's nothing that's going to kick that off like a listen to the one and only Lucy Lawless. If you roll back your podcast feed and find episode 294 of this show, you'll hear Lucy Lawless and I discuss all manner of things, including, my friends, the very moment that she knew she was going to be an actor. I tell you what, I remember the moment where I went, that's the job for me. And I must could only have been five or six. And my mother took me to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So it's like 1973, Auckland. We're up in the gods. And all of a sudden, they turned on the black light and the paint fluoresced. And in 1970, we'd never seen fluorescent paint in New Zealand before. And my mind was blown. And the door mice came out, the field mice and the flowers started dancing. I was like, holy shit, I know that's people on stage. That's real people. That's a real job. I just totally have to be a doormouse. And it, that was the moment where I got the bug and it was at a super young age. And you can find that episode, episode 294 with Lucy Lawless, where you found this episode. So let me tell you about my guest today. Tara Moss is a best-selling author. Uh, she is a, a documentary host. She's a public speaker. She's a human rights advocate. You can find her on Twitter at Tara underscore Moss. She's written 13 best-selling books over the last 20 years, published in 19 countries and 13 languages, including the acclaimed uh, Mac Vanderwall crime fiction series and the Pandora English paranormal series. But her latest book is a historical crime novel that's called The War Widow. It's out right now. It came out last month. It's already an international bestseller. The War Widow from Tara Moss. It's a book that looks at human rights, World War II, the Holocaust, women's roles in the war and post-war, and the survival of ordinary citizens in extraordinary circumstances. Tara's lovely to speak with. She is a disabled woman, and she is an advocate for people with disabilities and with chronic pain. And we covered pretty much all of that from her lockdown lounge on the outskirts of Sydney. I'm really, really grateful for her time and her wisdom today. And I know you're going to love this. Pop on a cup of tea and enjoy a chat with you, me, and the one and only Tara Moss. Good afternoon. 
Hello, sir. How are you? I am smashing. Thank you for uh, thank you for asking. I have a nice cup of tea. I think baby's asleep, so these are good times. I love the matching red rimmed glasses to go with the mug. You can't quite see it, but I do love an American diner mug. <laughs> I lived there for a while, and this is uh, from the Chicago diner, meat free since '83. So, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, the, the way to tell if someone's a vegan is because they will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> what does this say about me, I wonder? Canada. It means like you're like Timmy H's. That's what it looks like. <laughs> is that from Timmy it Hortons? Means, it means my, my, I like my tea very large and it does have Canadian maple leaves all over it. It's the mug I brought over from Canada. I'm a I'm a big fan of Canada. I've uh, spent a fair bit of time there. I have a few scars on my body from that country that I carry with me everywhere I go. <laughs> uh, I've a busted ACL and a, and a, and I've had four surgeries on my left hand. And uh, yeah, I've had great adventures in Canada. What part of Canada did you start in? Um, I was born in Victoria on Vancouver Island, and then wow. I have been living in North Vancouver for the last couple of years. So. Lynn Valley, which is not too far from kind of Squamish and Whistler yeah. and all that beautiful country. Yeah. I, I don't know if Australians are quite familiar with Whistler. Uh. <laughs> Actually, there's an amazing number of Australians that our daughter goes to school with in North Vancouver and an amazing number of Australians at Whistler, as you would know. In fact, yeah. just in general, there's like the Australian mafia in Vancouver. Well, and, and Van's a really interesting town. It has... I know, and I know someone very close to me who lived in Van for a while, and it's got this beautiful light and glorious side, but it's also got oh, there's a darkness there. <laughs> You're talking to a, a crime writer. I, yeah, Vancouver's got a lot of dark as well, but it's mostly so idyllic. Like, there's not that many people who would think of Vancouver and think of the dark side. So you've obviously lived it. Like, you've spent proper time in Vancouver if you're even aware of the dark side. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I wonder if if that is that because it was a it was a frontier town and it's got its origins in uh, you know we're a long way away from Europe we're a long way away from where we came from we're a long way away from the the east coast we can kind of do what we like the wild west yeah here I assumed your scars were relating to mountain biking snowboarding but I'm thinking back alleys at this stage no. I've seen Vancouver no, at night. No, you're right. There was snowboarding involved. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was the bust up in East Van. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, no, no. One, one was in BC and one was in Alberta. So, oh. uh, you know, I, I don't discriminate. <laughs> but I, no, I've spent a fair bit of time in Canada. I, I you know, uh, I went out. I've been out to Winnipeg and um, a couple of years back, we took the family out to Montreal and Quebec City. And um, look, it's glorious. It's a beautiful, beautiful country like many countries it's not without its challenges as far as it's for dealing with its first nations people and its management of natural resources but i think on the whole canada's done a pretty cracking job when you consider the neighborhood it's in it's uh... yes i think that's very true it, it's it's it was strange growing up with the neighbors we have and probably never stranger than now actually 
But this would be the first time possibly in history that uh, the borders have been literally shut off, yeah. you know, because of coronavirus. So it's a pretty weird time to live close to the border in North America. I just think they were talking about walls not that long ago with the Mexican border. I think the Canadians are about to build their own wall just to keep coronavirus out because it's really such a massive issue in the States. I feel bad for all my many American friends who are fabulous people and caught in the middle of this yeah. and not much liking the way it's being handled either. I, I think I think it's safe to say. My brother and his husband, they live in Michigan. And um, I'm like, are you guys all right? They're like, yep, we've got the go bag ready to go. And we're 42 minutes drive from the uh, Canadian border. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of... Um, a lot of refugees, yes, I think, coming up from America. Well, it depends on how it's going to play out, you know. Um, if there's one thing that I kind of figured out about that administration in the States, it's it's very much their MO. It's, it's so old school. It's I'm going to do something so preposterous that your head is going to be spinning for three straight days as to how I could have said such a thing. And while your head is spinning... I'm going to be out the back doing some nefarious shit that you'll never know about because you're too busy complaining about the thing I said. And by the time you come up for air, I'll say I'll do another preposterous thing. I do not believe that it happens by accident. No, it's sleight of hand. I agree. It's a, it's great for the comedians, but I think we're all starting to realize it's had some much more serious implications. Great for comedy, not so great for humanity, but yes. How did we get talking about that guy? I mean, he's, he's everywhere. When I'm when I'm in Canada, like you cannot avoid. I've, I've studiously avoided saying his name. You cannot avoid seeing Trump everywhere yeah. when you're in Canada, like at the dentist, the gym, mm. whatever. You're just seeing him on the screen, and it's even more present than it is over here in Australia, where um, he still takes up a lot of the column inches. Yeah, and I was Audrey was asking me that this morning. She was like, I don't give a shit that Boris Johnson's just combing his hair. I don't care. But, you know, we were talking about it. I, I really think it's got to do with the, the mechanism and the economic model of the news websites and things like Twitter and Facebook and Google. Like, their entire MO is to keep you looking, keep you watching, keep you clicking. And between those two leaders, there's enough to make, and people only click on things that make them angry or scared, which is why the headlines are always, you know, this is one thing you want to avoid or how to keep yourself safe from blah. That's why they always are like that. And those guys are just a fountain of content. And if you've got to publish an article every 12 minutes, I think there's some news websites, you've got to, if you work there, you've got to be finding stuff, copy, paste, go. Find stuff, copy, paste, go. You just don't have time. Like you said, the news cycle is just getting faster and faster and faster. And there's lots of reasons why people are rightfully anxious and concerned and want to know what's going on. It's just that the amount of actual helpful information is maybe less than 1% of what is being put out there in terms of content. Mm. That's possibly always been the case, but I suspect it's a smaller percentage now than ever. Yeah, I dare say that in this time, it's not my line, but the news has become like junk food, really. And if you consume too much of it, you're going to start having health issues. Similarly, mm. you've got to very deliberately find nutritious meals, prepare them yourself, make sure you check the ingredients, make sure you know where they come from before you put it into your body to make sure that it nourishes you and, and, and keeps you healthy. Similarly, you've got to find the right facts. You've got to take the time. You can't just take what's given to you, unfortunately, no. but this is where we are. 
That's right. Check your stats, <laughs> your sources. Yeah. Try to down, breathe deeply, and think about where the article's coming from. Yeah. Who owns the paper? That's a place to yeah. start. You know, yes. it is great to have you in this country. I know there was a bit of a, a bit of a kerfuffle about where you were when all the lockdown uh, situation yeah. happened. What you were living, you were in Canada with your family, and you came out to Australia to do a gig, right? Yes, I came out here for work, and it was supposed to be a short-ish work trip. I came over with like one duffel bag. Now I regret enormously my dedication to finally learning to pack light because this was the trip that <laughs> instead of being very short, I'm now going to be here for many months. But yeah, we're really fortunate that we managed to reconnect because uh, the borders started closing while I was in a, a Melbourne hotel. And it was quite remarkable watching the change as the first day I arrived People in Australia were much more relaxed about coronavirus than they were in Canada, where I had come from. And I just sort of thought, why is no one wearing masks? No one's wearing gloves. This is really weird. The very next day at the hotel, there was a big sign up. I could hear staff coughing and stuff like this. Like, well, I'm checking in, they're coughing and everything. I'm just going, oh, my God, this does not seem good. By the next day, those people were gone. There were signs up. You know, the breakfast room, first morning, normal. Second morning, there's like three people in there. The next morning after that, they'd cleared away all of the sort of open food areas. And then everybody's coming out with masks and gloves and you can't use your takeaway you know, reusable cups, all this stuff changed, like literally while I was staying at this hotel in Melbourne, trying to figure out what are we going to do about this podcast? I'm working on a secret podcast, I'll call it. What are we going to do about this? How can we finish the project? What are the health implications? Are we safe here? Literally in a hotel while this is happening. And then suddenly Trudeau announced Canadians should get back to Canada now. And 24 hours later, Morrison announced the same about Australians. And we went, okay, what are we going to do? And we made the decision to come back to Australia because we have a house here and we were renting a little condo in Vancouver. So we had to move out remotely. Our stuff is in storage now in Vancouver and we're living in our house in Australia that we haven't lived in for a couple of years and that nearly burned down in January. Huh. So there's been a lot of adjustment. It's been weird. We've been going up like into the attic and finding old stuff and we're all like wearing clothes that are 20 years old and it's it's an adventure in and of itself but we just feel incredibly lucky because literally in January Asher we thought this place was going to burn down there was fire on the property so we had to psychologically and emotionally come to terms with the thought that we were going to lose the house we'd kind of like built together over a decade yeah and all the kind of sentimental objects in it mostly family kind of stuff, stuff from our travels that meant something on a sentimental level. And now we're like here and we can't leave it. So yeah. it's it's really been quite strange. Was the threat of fire from the, the bushfires were happening? Yeah, the Australian right. bushfires, they they came to this area. We're in the Blue Mountains, so you probably would have heard yeah, that this goodness. area got hit pretty uh, brutally, yeah. uh, as a lot of areas in Australia did. And there was actually fire on the property. About oh. a third of our property was in flames, but thankfully it didn't reach the house. And the volunteer firefighters did a spectacular job of looking after our place. And in fact, we opened it up to them uh, remotely, of course, because we were in Vancouver at the time, and they left the most like heart-wrenchingly beautiful note thanking us for being able to use like use our amenities and I just thought to myself 
here are these volunteers are not even finding a place to go to the bathroom yeah. or get a glass of water or yeah. sit down. Like that's how full on that period was for them. So the idea that they could thank us for being able to come in and like make a cup of coffee, I just, so that yeah. that's, it's been, been pretty wild. But yeah, for a while there we thought, great, we're on opposite sides of the world and they're closing the international borders. And um, I don't think I slept for like a week until they got off that plane in Sydney. Your daughter's not, she's not that old, is she? She's only nine. Yeah. It was hard to be away from her at all, let alone having the uncertainty that yeah. we might actually be separated in a crisis. Yeah. But when they, by the time they arrived, did they have to do the quarantine thing? They actually arrived before the government put in the quarantine in the in the sense of the hotels. Yeah. But they had the more, I forgot what they called it at the time, but there was like a voluntary quarantine or like a quarantine you're supposed to do at home yes. for 14 days. Yes. So we did that. And thankfully, our place here is a really weird old house that used to be a, a tea room. So it is kind of like built in two halves that are connected. And we lived in separate halves of the house and weren't able to touch each other for 14 days. Oh, my God. I know. I mean, we're really lucky because we actually got to do that, go through that period together. And like I said, it was before the government did the hotel kind of lockdown for international travelers. But we could see each other and kind of do air hugs, but we couldn't cuddle. And I didn't touch another human being for about five weeks, including my daughter when she was standing like on the other side of the room. And it was it was really hard, actually, that touch starvation is a real thing. My goodness. So did you wake up that morning of and just burst through the door and just... <laughs> <laughs> yes. We had the day on the calendar. It was cuddle party day, we were calling it. And when it was the morning of the cuddle party, I got up out of my side of the house and like ran through and just crawled into bed with them. And um, they got into the habit of, of sharing a bed because everyone was a bit lonely, you know, and I just crawled in between them and just, I think we stayed in there for most of the day. There was cake, we made cake. We like, I had to talk friends into giving us flour because at that point you couldn't buy any flour. Like it was so weird, but it was cuddle party day. And that was, believe it or not, that was like the start of April, end of March, something yeah. like that. It feels like a lifetime ago yeah. already. Barely left the house since. It's super interesting. But I'm grateful that, A, you were nearby and that they weren't yeah. stuck in a hotel room or, or stuck far away yeah. and that at least she was with someone. And I swear I, I barely slept for days and but a good week or so because even once they managed to get the flights and they had like a confirmed flight, even me getting out of Melbourne I was concerned about. Yeah. And when I reached the airport, the airport was mostly empty and a you know, you're looking at the board and it's like cancelled, 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 on time, cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. And I'm like, I really hope I can get on this flight, you know. And yeah. um, so I was I was relieved when I reached our house and, you know, blew out the cobwebs and got inside. And I was yeah. extra relieved when they stepped off the plane. It was like they had their ticket, but they actually got on the plane. It wasn't cancelled. They made their way through and we could be together under the same roof. So to pick a side, you know, to pick a country, because that's mm. really what it is. That's a heck of a conundrum. It's really strange. And it was a real, a real mix for us because we've got family in Canada and in Australia and we're all dual citizens. Like 
both places are home to me. It's not ideal. I don't love having my heart kind of split like this. And there's a great sense of sort of unease with that situation. But it's one that a lot of people share if they've found a life overseas and their parents are getting older. And, you know, that time is very precious. And we've really prioritized spending time with Safira's grandparents, with our folks, the last few years in particular. And it gets harder and harder and harder. So it's it was a tough decision, especially not knowing how long we're going to be in lockdown. But we do have the luxury of green space here, which we didn't have where we happen to be living in Vancouver, mm. just in terms of personal space. Yeah. And so we feel it's probably safer from a pandemic perspective. Yeah. And we can't visit any of our the grandparents, we wouldn't visit anyone right now anyway. Like they'll, they'll start easing some of those restrictions. But the last thing I'd do right now is take a ferry across from Vancouver to Vancouver Island and spend time at my dad and my, my stepmom's house because they have health problems. Yeah. I just would never do it. Yeah. It's such a cruel, cruel, cruel disease in, mm. in how it inhibits. It, not only is it like horrible physically, what it does to you. And there's weird, there's like this hematological effects and it's not just a lung thing. It's as people get blood clots and stuff. It's, it's mm. wild. But that it prevents you from having that physical contact. It prevents you from holding another human that you care about. Especially when they probably aren't long for this world. Yeah. Like that's the most brutal thing about it. And what was happening in Italy, for example, which that was one of the first worst hit yeah. places and just, you know, the obituaries taking up most of the paper and funerals that no one could attend. And that's also a culture where you have to be there. You, yeah. It's a family oriented culture. Mm. So it's been really devastating on so many levels. And I just, I feel really fortunate at the moment that we're all healthy, Yeah, but you know, who knows about the future. And I've certainly got a lot of friends who have, loved ones in aged care homes and other facilities. And that's a tough place for people to be at the moment. And yeah. Yeah. you can't visit them when a lot of these outbreaks are happening in those types of yeah. uh, facilities. How do you see things recalibrating because of this, Tara? Oh, gosh, I wish I had that crystal ball. Uh, it changes for me every few days, you know, in, in, in terms of what I think is going to happen. I, I just wish there was a scenario with COVID-19 where the elderly, the disabled, the immune compromised weren't thrown under the bus. Like it just seems to me that every scenario that's being put forward puts the economy before those people's lives as if their lives aren't worth as much yeah. as, I don't know, a bank balance. And I know it's not that simple because they're the same people that really suffer when the economy is terrible, that people of lower socioeconomic means also will suffer hugely from the health crisis, but also from the economic crisis. So it's 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 not simple, no. But I I have yet to see a kind of a solution that doesn't overlook the needs of those groups of people. Mm. But the I guess the upside is possibly more flexibility to do with work, which is something that a lot of people with access issues and disabilities have been fighting for for many decades now yeah. so that I, I see is very positive and also people who want flexible work arrangements because they're parents or 
that's better for their mental health. There's, lot, there's lots of things that we can learn from this period, but um, I do see the, this kind of tension to do with the reopening as being a, another trauma in a way because it's going to divide people up. Like, think of all the people out there who have who are immune compromised or have a disability, but they don't talk about it with their work because they don't want to be discriminated against. And someone's going to ask them to come into work now and they're going to have to go, well, actually, I'm high risk. So they're going to have to kind of out themselves and be treated differently and maybe lose their jobs. I mean, this I see all this is really coming to the the foreground in the next few months. And I, I think it it's going to be tough, to be honest. The flexible work arrangements thing, we might walk back a little bit more. I mean, some industries you'll miss out on the little conversations that happen in between meetings and at the desk and that sort of thing is very good for productivity. But look, there, yeah. are, there are ways around that with things like, um, what do they call it? They call it a wormhole. It's like an always on Skype call that basically sits between two offices and it's mm. just, just always there. And you're just chatting the whole time, even though someone's on the other side of the, the city or the world. So things like that. But then there are other industries where it really doesn't matter that you're nowhere near physically yeah. the other people you work with and you can get your job done just fine, maybe even better. That's exactly right. I think universities are going to have to step up because there's been a lot of access issues for people in the education system with you know systems that have really focused on in-person hours or hours that are, have got to be in the classroom, even though you can still do your thesis or you can still do that work uh, mm. remotely. And that's been tough for people that have access issues. So I, I'm hoping there'll be better work arrangements in the educational areas and universities. But of course, our world relies, I should say our world as we know it or have known it, relies a lot on people working in factories, mm. creating things. I mean, some of those arrangements are going to have to change a great deal. And there's also a lot of people who just don't have the luxury of space in their living arrangements at all. Whether it's people who are living on the street or people who are living in very crowded housing, there's a huge number of of people in the world that have those types of uh, living arrangements, have done for a long time. And now that's suddenly a very big issue. So It's a pretty mixed bag out there, and there's a lot of, I think, repercussions that we won't really be across for a few more months to come and probably well and truly beyond that as well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As a crime writer, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but we've been taking in a lot of Netflix. All right, we've been taking, <laughs> taking in a lot of Westworld, you know, and, yes. and and rightly so. You know, it's like when you watch films from before a time when I can't tell you if you've watched an Elvis movie. Elvis is such a hero. The amount of women that he hits, it's bananas. <laughs> they don't age well. No, so, sorry, Elvis fans. I'm very active in the vintage community, but and I've gone to the Elvis festival, but. I'm sorry, people who listen to this program will now know I'm not actually an Elvis fan. I think the culture is fascinating, but I'm yeah. not a fan of the man. But, sorry. Uh, no, sorry. It's, it's fine. No. he w- In the vintage community, I'm going to pay for that. Well, oh, really? So it's like you worship Elvis or that's it? Well, there's a, Elvis is one of those figures. There's, a, there's kind of like a handful of figures, but I'm actually not a fan of Elvis or, ready for it, Frank Sinatra. Totally fine. Who is a bit of a prick. I'm sorry. He really was. It's tough. Terrible people make great art. That's the thing we have to accept. That's Terrible true. people make great art. Jimi that Hendrix was awfully violent to his girlfriends. John Lennon was too. And you just have to understand. Terrible people make great art. Michael Jackson and R. Kelly are not alone. Terrible people make great art. And you just have to understand that. Because yeah. what are you going to do? Not listen to any music or read any books? You it's know? sad, but true. It's, and then where do you where do you draw the line? It's a it's a really uh, difficult ethical conundrum. Yeah. I guess I guess where I was going is that there's all these films made in a time when if a woman was challenging a man, it was completely acceptable to the point where you would put it in a major motion picture that he can put an end to this challenge by slapping her across the face and saying, "Don't you talk to me like that?" Or that you deserve that, or you brought that on yourself. And everyone goes, "Yeah, hey, that's right, Elvis, you go for it." And- to bring her to her senses, of course, was the other thing. That would be to kind of give a lesson, but also for their own good because they're being hysterical. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> James Bond didn't this, mind it either. James Bond didn't oh, mind a bit of a, come to your senses, woman. You know. Yes. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the premises of all the shows that we were watching were all created before a time when being on a bus was not a benign thing to do. You know, it's like when you watch a movie now, like, why don't you just text them? Oh, because mobile phones hadn't been invented. You know, there's so many films you watch now where you're like, the tension and the dramatic tension wouldn't exist if there was a mobile phone around. It'd just be like, no, it's fine, no problem. This is why I'm writing in the past, because I think mobile phones ruin a lot of things for fiction writers. Like, mobile phones ruin things. DNA ruins things. It's true. You know, CCTV cameras ruin a lot of mystery. So... I've chosen to go back in time to the 1940s, which makes my research harder in a lot of ways, but also opens up a lot of plot possibilities. Right. I guess where I was leading to this is like when it comes to, you know, premises, writing now and trying to come up with a way of how do you even start to imagine crime with a new rule book? You know, when you can't have your heist gang all in the same car, you just can't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't do Ocean's 15. It's like we're all in separate cars. You can't do it. Well, look, the masks become a lot less suspicious, though. So there's, oh. some, there's some room there. I mean, there was a time when you'd walk into a bank with a mask on and you'd be in trouble. Now they probably would want you to walk in with a mask in a lot of places. So yeah, there's a changing goalposts. Yeah. 
but it's weird watching old films. And like you mentioned, some of those ones from the swinging 60s, because there's all that touching. Yeah. Everyone's like touching and familiar with each other and close to each other. And it seems so incredibly tense now to watch. It's like, no, no, don't put your hand on your face. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 don't put your hand in your mouth. Yeah, I guess you could go back and write, you know, during a Spanish flu, you could uh, do some pandemic story <laughs> if you want to write in the past. Yeah, you could write um, World War One Spanish flu. Oh, tough. Yeah, grim. Really brutal stuff. You don't take your research very lightly, do you? I don't think you're the person that, you know, Google's had it was disposed of a body and has the CIA roll up. Oh, sorry, it was the FBI roll up at your front door <laughs> <laughs> you know, they did happen to someone. They were a crime writer and they were Googling how to dispose of a body and the red flag went up somewhere. You don't necessarily do that, but you really uh, you really get stuck into it, don't you? I sure do. And I've often laughed before the days of internet research, I used to have quite a visible library of crime-related content. And I used to think that, you know, when the telephone guy would come to put in a new line, he'd look behind him and see all these books on homicide and poisons and stuff and just like, just vanished with the door swinging, you know, because it does look incredibly strange. I have a pretty macabre library that I now keep well and truly out of reach of my daughter, but you can do only so much online. And I think a lot of my challenge over the next little while will be writing my next book without probably being able to visit some of those locations. In the past, I would always, always do it. And now I've got some international locations and I don't even know when international travel will be possible next. Yeah. So that's, that is going to be a real challenge. Because it's like, I can try my hand at knowing what it is to, you know, fire a particular weapon, to write what it is to fire a weapon, because I've fired weapons. But I was thinking about this the other day. I've never been in a fight I once punched a guy in the tuck shop line for bullying me and I was 14 and that was like the one and only time I actually made a fist and actually used it to hit somebody. So I don't know what I'd do if I was ever to write about a fight, you know. <laughs> I, I have been in fights, Asha. I've, I've thrown people to the ground. I've thrown people down escalators and out of moving cars. It's not because I woke up that day and decided, hey, this is a great day to throw someone out of a moving vehicle. It's because I got attacked a lot in my youth. So I'm actually not a terrible person to have on your side if you do find you need to make another fist one day, Osher. Oh, Jesus Christ. But it, it pays to go to experts when you're researching things. And like the last thing you want to do as an author is to watch a crime show, cop show or something and go, oh, this is how it works and just leave your research there. You need to dig a lot deeper. And for me, I've, yeah, I go all the way. I'm like a method writer. I've been choked unconscious and set on fire and I've gone out in squad cars and seen autopsies and done loops over the opera house with the roulettes and gone out with SWAT teams and fired all manner of weapons, which I don't like, by the way. I don't like guns. I will never have a, a gun or a gun license, but I need to know how to use them because my characters do. I, I think that's part of being a writer. You, you have to be really familiar with the material because you can't pull the wool over a reader's eyes, in my view. It has to have that ring of authenticity and familiarity. If the character does this sort of stuff, if the character is a detective or an assassin or, or whoever they are, it, it needs to sound right when you're reading it. It needs to really ring true. And that's why I'll, I'll go literally all the way, everything short of getting myself arrested, really. That's, that's one thing that's very important. But you said you like to write about times in the past. 
the role of women in society in the past is almost incomprehensible. Gee, she's 16 now. She's an extraordinarily powerful young woman. But to try and explain to her that there was a time when if you, as a woman, got a job, you would only ever, if you're lucky, be in the typing pool. And then the moment you got engaged, they would literally throw you a tea party and say, great work, Tara. It's been great to know you. Bye. And that's it. That is your career over. Because your job now, that's all you are good for is to make babies and clean a house. (laughs) But that was truth. That was exactly what happened. It is. And it's within living memory. Like, you know, a lot of people forget, often conveniently forget that women couldn't get their own loans at a bank. They couldn't get their own credit card. They couldn't buy a house without a man's signature. Couldn't go to uni. In Australia, they couldn't go to uni. Yeah, that's right. In Australia, that's right. And it's within living memory. So like for many of us, our mothers went through this, not even just our grandmothers, our mothers went through this. And It's part of my reason for wanting to, it's not a reimagining of history, but I'm trying to take the genre and the stories that I love, this period that I love, the 1940s, and try to kind of imagine a woman in that time that I can relate to and how she would deal with those obstacles. You know, there's a, a real life detective by the name of Lillian Armfield, who was the first policewoman in New South Wales, able to uh, carry a firearm. She was the first female detective in New South Wales. She was a real trailblazer and pioneer. She wasn't allowed to marry. If she married, she'd be automatically thrown out. Women in that time as well, they couldn't get any superannuation. They weren't eligible for any recompense if they were injured in the line of duty. They weren't allowed to be part of the police club. I mean, in the literal sense, you had to be a guy to be part of that. So they lacked all the supports that are really essential in that kind of work, but they still lined up for it. There are always many more women applying than there were uh, spaces allotted to female police officers. And so this writing this period actually gives me the opportunity, the excuse to kind of drop in a Lillian Armfield character for a few lines to kind of express some of these real life situations that women found themselves having to deal with because the history is really fascinating and it speaks to the fact that people can overcome and that they can change circumstances. And it never just happens kind of naturally and automatically. It's always done through agitation, through advocacy, through hard work, and usually some pain as well. Like, you know, think of how many people lost jobs putting people offside by wanting change in these areas and so many others. So, yeah, I think writing about the 1940s and particularly putting a spin on it that reimagines hard-boiled reimagines noir to me is really exciting because it's a genre I love, but it's a genre that's also like notoriously, well, sexist, really. I mean, I mean that kind of kindly because I actually really like these books. But when you when you read a lot of hardboiled, it's it's the stereotype of sexism that that we think on, you know, the the women who are fainting constantly and needing to be saved. And this is where a lot of the stereotypes come from. So it's a great opportunity as a writer to jump back into that genre and just change it, make it fresh 
give it a fresh perspective and focus on some of those undertold or untold stories. Because there were women PIs. I should mention my central character is a PI and she reopens her late father's investigation agency and the book takes place in 1946. And there were female PIs at that time in Sydney, Australia. It's just that we haven't heard of them. We haven't seen stories about them. We've we all know Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade, but we just don't know about these women. And they're fascinating characters. And I think it just brings so much more suspense and interest to a story to tell it from a different perspective that hasn't been overdone. Particularly when, honestly, I had no idea that there were female PIs in the 40s you know, in yeah. Sydney. To say that Australia was conservative at the time would be an insult to conservative places. It was so so extraordinarily straight-laced and so extraordinarily tied up. Yeah, in post-war, of course, there's this really interesting moment where through the war, women were actively encouraged to join the, the war effort, as we know, and... World War II was a really horrific time in so many ways, but it w- it also provided some changes in terms of women's roles and opportunities. And for a lot of women, it was the first time they enjoyed the independence of a wage. And then suddenly it's post-war and it's like, okay, you've got these returned soldiers. Okay, ladies, thanks very much. Get back in the kitchen. And they're all kind of shoved off. Yeah. And it didn't work for all of them. And not all of them had husbands either. Yeah. They didn't have families necessarily. A lot of them were just women who wanted to continue the work they'd done for yeah. years. And they were really shoved out of industry yeah. and also kind of shamed for it. It was shameful to be unmarried. It was shameful to be a widow, if you can believe. You know, And there were a lot of widows, as you can imagine, after the war. Yeah. So it makes sense to reflect on that time and think about how it resonates with issues today in terms of equal pay, in terms of how different segments of the community are viewed. And it's not only looking at gender, I'm looking very much at human rights issues across the board, looking at the anti-Semitism, the racism, and, you know, the Holocaust, how the, the Holocaust would not have happened without this ranking of humans by race, by creed, by religion. It would not have been possible. And I think it's a really good time to reflect on that and try to recall those lessons and learn from them, especially now where you see this, you know, rise of fascism, really, and and hate speech. Yeah, it is. It's a topic. Sorry, I just, I went from fun women PIs to suddenly the Holocaust. It's quite a big swing, but. You're absolutely right, because I think what you were trying to get towards is it is in the dehumanization. When the dehumanization starts, that Mm. way, uh, that human being is now just an object, an object that I can throw away like an empty, an empty chip packet. You know, I can throw it away like something, something that is now useless to me. It, it means nothing to me. I'll get rid of it. No, but their possessions mean a lot. So, hey, I'm really happy to take those. I mean, that that's another major yeah. theme in The War Widow. The book is, you know, Nazi war loot and the powers that be and how all of this works. If you can make the population get on board with the dehumanizing of groups of people, mm. you can get state-sanctioned and kind of publicly sanctioned, culturally sanctioned theft. And we've seen that happening to the Aboriginal people in Australia. We've seen that happening with the First Peoples in 
every country really in the world. And we saw that happen with the Jewish people across Europe. And it's not just their dehumanization, but it's it's like the strategy behind gaining more power and wealth is to take that from them. And that that legacy doesn't just sort of change when the war ends. There's mm. a long, the long shadow of war, there's intergenerational trauma, and there's that shifting of wealth and possessions mm. that doesn't just flick back those lands, those buildings. This is true. And the people who benefit from these power structures are usually, Tara, they're usually, they're, they're totally fine with these power structures being called out, uh, in my experience. <laughs> no problem at all. You know, you're absolutely right, lady writer. You go right ahead and say how, you know, everything that led me to have everything that I have for the amount of effort less than that person's had to work just because they have a vagina. Um, you go right ahead and tell me that. It was uh, <laughs> Helen Lewis, a brilliant tweet. It lived forever. When I when become to uh, Lewis's law, comments on any article about feminism justify feminism. Yes. <laughs> so I would say that as an author who writes powerful female characters who clearly speaks as she's a powerful woman, I'm sure dudes are totally happy with listening to you and reading the things that you say. It's been really relaxing, yeah. <laughs> it's been chill, I have to say. Interesting time to be a woman on the internet. I mean, thank goodness you can be at all. And I'm very lucky in a lot of ways, but oh my God, is that ever true? It, it's interesting because when you write into fiction though, my experience is that you attract less attention because a lot of those trolls don't read. It's true. I'm just going to say it. It's true. If you write an article on an op-ed or do a, a human rights piece, they will read the headline and go, oh, this is an article about injustice. And they will just go you with their troll army, right? They don't even need to kind of look past the headline or the whatever the sub-editors put in there. But if you write an entire novel, it's very interesting to me that it's easier from the perspective of death threats. I've actually had fewer death threats this year than I have overall over the past kind of five years. 2020, now with 26% less death threats towards Tara Moss. It's a winning year. <laughs> it's like a... A noticeable change, and I'll certainly return to nonfiction. I wrote two nonfiction books, speaking out in the fictional woman, and did a lot of, you know, had a lot of those picked up and placed online. A lot of those those chapters or articles about those books, and oh my goodness, there was a lot of troll activity, a lot of death threats. But it's interesting to me that I can be writing now. It's 21 years of writing and 11. Novels, it's very rarely the novels that get those kind of death threats, even though the thread is the same. As someone who writes about death and you can't really, I mean, come on, what's a crime book without a bit of death? Because that's the stakes. The stakes have got to be high. It's why I love, have you watched the show Ozark? I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's extraordinary. And I, and I, I won't give anything away by saying it involves a drug cartel. All okay. right. And... What's extraordinary about Ozark, it's a beautiful piece of writing, Tara, because they've set this premise up where because these people are involved with this drug cartel, everything becomes a life and death decision, mm. okay? Because if they fuck up, the men will be around and it's Colombian neckties for everyone, right? So when the teenage daughter is having a, fuck you, you're not my parents, I'm out of here, I'm uh, like, you know, and having the teenage daughter moment, 
They have to manage that shit because she will literally die if they don't sort it out. And so it's like taking the bins out. Everything in the show is life and death. It's very, very, very clever. Sorry. Anyway, I divert. Back to you. So when it comes to you, you write a bit about death. I do. Therefore, you are clearly considering the amount of research that you've done into who and what leads up to someone go, right, the only way out of this is I'm going to have to kill someone. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Or the best idea right now, I think the best thing to do right now is to kill this person. Yep, that'll fix everything. What could possibly be behind a death threat over an article written on the <laughs> internet? Entitlement? I'm going to put that out there. Entitlement. I, I think that death threats, I mean, they're they're technically not legal. You're not allowed to threaten people with death. You're not allowed to do it in person. You're not allowed to do it in the mail and you're not allowed to do it electronically. But I think people only do that when they feel entitled to do so. And it's changing now. But in the earlier days of cyberspace, when this was happening, it was condoned in so much as there was no response to it. There was no legal response. And people kind of just went, ah, it's the wild west of the internet. You can do what you you like here. It's kind of for cowboys only. And I think, you know, it made the internet less democratic because it pushed people out. It's, It's just not possible to have, say, a family and have people sending you messages saying they're going to kill your child. Like, who stays in that? Who weighs it up and goes, sure, I'm going to keep blogging about this or, you know, I'm going to keep my Twitter feed going. Like it it does have a silencing and chilling effect. But I'd say entitlement is a huge element. And we see that dynamic in actual violence of the physical type, as well as threatened violence. Entitlement is a huge part of that. And going back to our previous conversation about World War II, entitlement. It's not a, a switch that suddenly flicked where someone is a a normal, equal human being, and then suddenly you think, oh, I have the right to kill them. It's usually a process that's happened where you think you are entitled to their life. They're in your way, and you're entitled to push them out of the way by getting rid of them. So, look, I think entitlement's a really big one. And then there are the classic things that any crime writer or cop will tell you. There's, you know, there's greed, there's jealousy, you know, desire for power, all that stuff plays in. Wanting the the will to be in your name, wanting the, you know, all that stuff. It happens, but I think entitlement for violence in general is usually the biggest factor involved, particularly when you're talking about death threats against people you've never met. Let me see if I can just understand you just a little clearer. So the reason that a stranger on the Mm. internet, usually, let's be honest, a jet ski, is going (laughs) to... It's a jet ski or it's a ute. Or a picture of Ned Kelly. I love it. Yes, yes. it's true, Tara. The egg. There's still the the odd egg out there. He's like, oh, the- is egg guy still upset? <laughs> Apparently, he's really upset. Egg guy's six seven with heaps of numbers in their name because they're <laughs> too fucking cowardly to use themselves. Yeah. So the entitlement of I have this life. I'm going to assume it all, and I'm going to probably be right. I am a white man. I uh, may or may not be in a relationship. I have a job. I have a stable income and I can walk down the street without fear of violence of a stranger. How dare you threaten all of the things that 
are in place and are maintained by other men who look like me, how dare you threaten them because now I don't feel safe. Because if I had to live my life without these things, without the fact that I can walk down the street at night or I'm probably not going to get pulled over because I'm white or I got a job, why don't you have a job? Now I feel threatened. So therefore I'm entitled that you, I feel you are threatening everything that I have and it keeps me safe. Therefore I am entitled to defend this with everything I've got. And right now the biggest thing I've got is saying I should fucking kill you. That about right? That distills it nicely. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. But it's amazing to me how someone who most likely does not feel threatened walking down the street, as you pointed out, how someone like that can feel threatened by such small things like differences of opinion, desire for equality, how a push for equality can feel to a person like that as if something is being taken away from them. Yeah. Sharing rights they already have is like them having their rights taken away. That idea is really fascinating to me. And it will always be the case. And, you know, I think there'll always be a pushback against change that makes the world more equitable for everyone because some people have it much better than others. And they're going to yeah. they're gonna fight for that ground. You, you hit a real important point there. And I, I remember thinking about this around, there was a lot of activity. Pre-COVID, there was obviously a lot of, a lot of uh, verbal activity and, and a lot of focus being drawn to the way Australia is treating people who are seeking asylum and treating refugees. And this whole idea of, uh, if I come here, there'll be less for me. Look, it's not pie, okay? <laughs> if... A person comes to this country and we give them a slice of pie. It doesn't mean that there's less pie for you. There's enough pie for everybody. You'll be all right. I'd actually be more bakers as well. This is true. <laughs> I'm just saying, technically, that the math is just about something completely different. Have you tasted Algerian pastry? Come on. <laughs> Amazing. Come on, mate. Uh, but, yeah, it's this, this idea of if you have something that I have, I now have less of it. I cannot have you have this thing that I have. It makes me feel that what I have is now in jeopardy or that it's going to be taken away from me. And I cannot stand that someone else also has what I have. That's the thing that I can't quite understand and how, and nobody wants to feel that way. I can't imagine how frightening it is to think about the world this way. I can't imagine how scary it is to drive down the street and see a powerful woman doing something, or heaven forbid, someone who's not white driving a car better than you. I can't imagine how scary it is and how infuriating it would be all day to just be like, ah, fuck him, fuck him. Like, you'd just be exhausted at the end of the day. It'd be horrible. I don't think it would be a very pleasant experience to live in those minds. But it's not a new thing, and there are industries springing up all the time to support the kind of paranoid thinking that you're talking about, and yeah. we're, we're seeing it. We're seeing it more plainly probably day by day that there are industries springing up happy to kind of stoke conspiracy theories and hate speech. <laughs> People feel really fearful that they're going to lose their way of life. Yeah. Going to lose their job, going to lose their home, won't be able to eat, won't be able to whatever right it is that they're scared to lose, whether it's, yeah. you know, the right to bear arms or, or, or something like that that I won't relate to or something much more clear, which is the right to be, you know, safe or to have a roof over your head. Those are things that you, you can make people feel really scared to lose. And it is not the first time that those games have been played. And no. again, that happened before World War II as well. That yeah. was part of the lead up. That was what 
opened the channel towards the horrific events that followed. So yeah. let's not do that again, world. Let's no. really not do that again. And particularly not with half of the population, you numpty. No. But it, it always it leads to a lot of different things, does it? It's, it starts like, and I know Clementine Ford has written about this in her book, Boys Will Be Boys, the premise, and I've been thinking about it a lot because we just had our baby. Do you know, oh, I, should, I should mention, do you know the name of our baby, Tara? Is it Wolf? It is. It's Wolfie. <laughs> I love it. And you know, I have a walking stick named Wolfie. I absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> My personal crest. I love this. Wolfgang, yes. We have a baby called Wolfgang. And I'd, I'd read her book a few years back when it first came out. And the premise was, I am Clementine Ford. I kick ass and take names. I am fucking feminist. Fuck you. Holy shit, I've just given birth to a son. How do I stop him being trapped and how do I stop him being a victim of this kind of behavior? Nobody wants their little boy to be the one that King hits someone and mm. kills them. Nobody wants their son to be the one that murders their intimate partner. Nobody wants their son to grow up to do that. Mm. Fucking hell. And if you are, Christ, what the fuck? You know? Yeah, toxic masculinity is pretty terrible for men as well as for women. And everybody who is neither gender, they, no one really does well out of toxic masculinity. No. Did you hear about that thing that happened the other day on the highway north of New South Wales? I don't know if I did. I'm still too caught up with Richard <sighs> Pussy and his oh. that horrible incident in Victoria, the other road incident. So this is just, it just paints such a horrible picture and it is an enormous tragedy I don't know enough about it and I can't I can only say that the families involved must be just horribly, horribly, horribly affected. There's a semi-trailer and an SUV, all right? The SUV is there's two people in it, a man is driving and his partner, she's in the passenger seat. Something happens on the road between these two vehicles, all right? They pull over, both drivers get out, they get in a fist fight. The rumble takes them into the incoming lane where a B-double going at 100 kilometres an hour just kills them both right in front of the woman. Oh, horrible. And it just breaks my heart that these men, they didn't have other options to deal with this. That, as far as they're concerned, that was the best idea they had. They're like, you know what? I know exactly what to do. This is how I solve problems. This is well, how I solve of, problems. You think of all the all the points at which that could have resolved. You know, you, that yeah. whatever was happening on the road could have stopped. Yeah. Pulling over, usually a bad sign, but you could have stayed in the vehicle. And then, it, yeah, all those points of possibility where you could oh. actually talk yeah. the situation down and resolve it. Didn't Absolute, happen. an utter tragedy and a horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy. And these are people's sons. They might have been someone's fathers, you know? And in my heart, you know, and I think about any man that's in that situation, whenever I, you know, and I'm trying to think about it this, this way, particularly in Brisbane when there was all that King Hit stuff going on and, and people were dying and it was like, as far as he was concerned, that was that man's best idea. That was the smartest thing he could have done. How can we let boys grow up thinking mm. that this is the right thing? This is, you know, because that's it. Your life's over. You just killed someone. For what? Because yeah. I spilled your beer. Yeah. And terrible for the person in the oncoming car, if I may say, as well. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? He was just trying to get to work. and That's the rest of his life. Yeah. The rest Horrible. of his life. And this is the thing, you know, that 
I don't know how to solve it, Tara. I'm just saying that I certainly don't want my son growing up to be that. And, you know, when I think about, I'm just super grateful. George is, uh, George has got the, oh, we love her boyfriend. He's such a good guy. Oh, we love him. <laughs> we love him so. He's such a good fella. His parents are great. He's great. Well, I had the most beautiful thing I was watching before we started our chat, which was my husband sitting down with our daughter who we're homeschooling at the moment and sewing an owl craft project with her and doing this sewing, which is something that men used to do in the mid-century. Everybody had to sew and mend their own stuff and now is viewed by many people as like a feminized only skill. You know, guys are not supposed to sit down with a needle and thread. You fucking cuck. What are you, mate? Yeah, needle and thread. I'm like, it's fabulous and practical. And oh my goodness, it just filled my heart. And now they're outside kicking a soccer ball around. And it's it's so much better for the world when we let all people be their whole selves. Yes. When we don't cut the girls off from soccer or the boys off from sewing. Like just let everyone be fully who they're capable of being. I was a tomboy when I was little, and I find that term really weird. I I was called a tomboy all the time, and it meant that if I liked certain things, I was a type of boy, you know, a tomboy. It was like, no, I was just a girl who liked Hot Wheels cars and climbing trees and ripping the knees in my jeans and getting in amongst it. But, yeah, I think the rigid gender roles are a problem and they're strongly tied with toxic masculinity and they're strongly tied with gender violence. And they're the type of thing I have really spent 21 years of my life writing to try to shift in some way through fiction or nonfiction, whether it's like in your face talking about it or whether it's sort of embedded in a story. I think there's really value in kind of continuing to challenge and question those rigid ideas. And also just look at the way, how bad it used to be and go like, things are possible. We can change things. See, look where we've come from. That is a reason for optimism. We have to only want it. Just two days ago, like this massive head of the travel industry said that Tracy Grimshaw needs a slap across the face and an uppercut. You know, yeah, because of something like not cool. Come on, man, we're not helping, pal. No, and and it's really a positive thing in that is that it got called out because there was a time when it wouldn't have been. Yeah, and there was also a time when calling it out would have been dangerous for someone. Yeah. So people are calling it out and going, oh well, that's not where we're at with the world now. We don't find that kind of language acceptable. That is a type of change. We still have a terrible problem with violence, with with physical violence, but at least some of it is being called out. And I see that as another step down this road that we have to take. It's never going to be straightforward, but it is a road we all have to take together to change these issues. What's the extraordinary AFL coach from West Australia? Michelle Cowan, she has a great line about this. She was talking about like how do you call things out in the workplace, and particularly you know you know things like that, or a, in a group chat, or or something like that, because it can get really tricky as a man to another man. Going, hang on a second, mate. Help me understand why that's funny. Brilliant. Help me understand why you would think that I can't coach AFL, or help me understand why you think it's okay to say that. Help me understand why, as a way to diffuse or a way to call out something without going you're a misogynist, just going, hang on a second, help me understand why it's okay for you to say, you know, you should slap Tracy Grimshaw across the face. And that makes them straight away go, oh, hang on a second. 
Yeah. But you see the way women have to adapt. Like what's yeah. fascinating about that is what she's doing is saying she doesn't understand something. She's saying she's lacking a certain piece of knowledge and she's asking for that knowledge from a man. It's brilliant and it works, but it's an adaptation. And it's, I remember there was this thing about vocal fry a few years back. You know, they talked about vocal fry and they talked about women lowering their voices and how their voices sounded strange because they were croaky from trying to get them so deep. And it was, again, another adaptation that if you have a high voice, you're not taking it seriously. So women were lowering their voices, but then that was also not okay. It seems like there's no winning point if you say, sorry. In order to make your point, then it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't apologize, but you might not be able to make your point otherwise. That's why these strategies are so fascinating. And I guess we can hope there'll be a time when they won't be necessary, when yeah. you can just speak plainly. And, and yeah, those strategies are really necessary because human relations are complicated and those hierarchies are complicated. And yeah. even if they're not acknowledged hierarchies, they exist. Yeah. And people respond to them. So adaptations are incredibly they're an interesting part of human behavior and they're still needed yeah as we move forward into this this bold new corona world there's no vaccine there probably won't be one for a while it took them five years to find an ebola vaccine and even with we have vaccines for things and people aren't using them as well so there's that i mean there's no guarantee that having a vaccine will may mean that it's widely taken up. That's, That's a whole other kettle of fish, Tara That's Moss. That's a whole other conversation. And, um, and the World Health Organization, we're just talking about that today as well, that, you know, there's no guarantee that the development of a vaccine will suddenly make this a non-issue. Mm. Coronavirus will continue to be dangerous for people with immune suppression yeah. who are older, who yeah. have underlying conditions, which is a huge number of people, people yeah. who are disabled. For people like me, I, I don't I don't like my chances. You know, I do not like my chances with the coronavirus at all. So it, yeah, it's not going to suddenly switch off. Unfortunately, no. this is among us now. Though we have a chance, as we we spoke earlier, what would your dream be? You know, we have a chance now to maybe hit reset or recalibrate a few things about our society. What would your dream be? That what, what would be some silver lining that you'd love to see come out of this? Oh, putting people before profit, putting the environment before production. You know, we do need to slow down, but in ways that... We haven't been doing for a while. We need to slow down, but it's slowing down our consumption. It's being more mindful with our consumption. And we need to work differently in the world. I think there's going to be massive changes because there needs to be. And some of that's going to be a pretty tough transition. But, yeah, people before profits, the fact that really wealthy countries are so concerned about, you know, share prices, but they're not taking care of... I don't know, people living on the street, people who are in tough socioeconomic circumstances. I mean, this isn't new. This stuff has been around for a long time. We've had advocates on these issues working their butts off for decades and decades. And now suddenly we've realized we're actually all part of communities. Yeah. If there's a whole bunch of people who are sick, we might just be sick and die as well. It impacts all of us. I think maybe understanding the connectedness of things like the health and well-being of the human beings around us. That would be a great wake-up call. That would be a great takeaway from this. The optimistic part of me wants to believe that those things will, um, you know, will set in and people will look at the world a little bit differently and think about a safety net and think about 
healthcare, universal healthcare, and think about how all that mm. actually is really important for everyone. Mm. The cynical part of me and the crime writery part of me is is maybe not always as optimistic, but um, yeah, I would like to see people before profit. And I think this is possibly an opportunity for more of our societies to face that and look that in the eye and really contemplate it. I hope you're right. Because it's only once we experience something that we can get, like, not, not everybody reads books. That's just how it is. And to try and find that empathy and trying to find that awareness is hard unless the thing's actually happening to you, you know. And this is going to be happening and is happening to yeah. a lot of people. Maybe that's part of the breakthrough. I, I find it hard to even talk about silver linings just because of the level of suffering going on. But I do hope that some of the changes that will inevitably occur from this have to do with understanding that we're all in this together and that actually we can't live the way we have been mm. and the polarization of wealth is dangerous yes it is it absolutely and yet as humans we all know we've all been through it the relationship sucks right before it ends and then yes. it really yes. does and then it hurts a lot when it's over but when you yeah. find the new person now that you've learned your lessons that new thing is like oh my god I can't believe I wanted to, that one to keep going. Yeah, yeah. What was I thinking? It was right at first and then it just wasn't. And that's nobody's fault. It just was. And now yeah. I'm here in this incredibly happy place, but I had to go through the shit part. Yes. And we have to remember that. Yes. We have to keep trying to look at possibility and a way forward. And that yeah. is really hard with the level of uncertainty we're all facing and the level of anxiety that we're all experiencing admittedly at different levels, but it's, you know, a kind of worldwide phenomenon right now. Yeah. Uncertainty leads to anxiety. There's a lot of fear. Yeah. If we can hang on to hope and we can continue to look after each other, maybe, just maybe, we'll get through this and be better on the other side. How do you deal with uh, anxiety? What do you do when you've got a tough day? Look, I'm a classic introvert and a novelist, so I like to be taken away to other worlds, and that helps me with my anxiety, actually. I find it's relaxing to read. I find it's relaxing to write, maybe not on deadline. That's not very relaxing, but I find it relaxing to write and to put myself in other people's shoes. Books are great for flexing the empathy muscles, and they do make you feel more relaxed and give you a sense of possibility. Even when the books themselves aren't, you know, uplifting or don't have a happy ending, you, you can feel more centered in a way. I do practice some meditation. I'm not very good at it, but I'm working on it. I have, I'm someone who lives with a lot of chronic pain, so I have to be very mindful in order to keep my pain levels down. I also need medication. I'm not without that, but it's important for me to keep my body and mind as relaxed as possible. So I put some time into those self-care elements of my day. And I find when I don't do that, I, you know, I suffer for it. So that's kind of been a part of my own wake up call is the need to look after myself. And it's challenging in these days of coronavirus because there's new things to wake you up in the middle of the night, you know, and it makes it all the more important to work on yourself in that way, work on your mind and, and try to, yeah, I want to say, keep yourself together. We don't always have to be together, but to take the time to work on yourself is a valuable thing and it doesn't have to be a lot of time each day. Tara, I am acutely aware that your daughter is out the back playing <laughs> and uh, I couldn't bear to keep you from that any longer. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for spending time with me today and speaking with me. I'm so grateful that you are together. In this time, I think all of us are very quickly realising that a bigger TV doesn't fucking do anything. No. People I love being in the same room as me, being nourished by good food that we've cooked in the house, smelling delicious and us all going to sleep after sharing a funny story does better than anything ever. And that's the greatest feeling inside our hearts. There's no drug that feels like that. And I have tried a few, Tara. (laughs) (laughs) You're a well-lived man. (laughs) Well, look, you do your kind of research. I've been sober 10 years now, all right, but there was a time. (laughs) There was a time. (laughs) What I love, I just have to point out, is that I can see you while we're doing this and you've wrapped your piece of paper into what looks like a perfect spliff. Oh. And we're in Australia, so I know that's not what it is, but in Vancouver it would be. Uh, Okay, so here's the thing. I have um, I have generalized anxiety disorder, and I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. So when I when I do podcasts, I I tend to fidget with things, and this is my little fidgety thing here. I don't know if you can see it. It's made of bike chain and key rings. But Andy, my producer, is like, "Is there some metal clinking?" Now the thing is, Tara, you may not realize this. I have excessive hearing damage from too many years in the music industry, so I can only hear you because I'm wearing headphones turned up quite loud. I cannot hear the frequency spectrum that these things click around in. So I'm, I've been playing with this thing for ages, and Andy's like, the fuck's going on? It sounds like there's a bike chain in the room. So I've had to fidget with something, and this is a lens cloth. Oh, it's a lens cloth. I it's thought it was a cloth. piece of paper you'd rolled perfectly. Honestly, you, the way you were holding it, yeah. it looked like a spliff, That's which a... is a very familiar sight in BC. It I sure have. is. <laughs> Since it's been legalized. Oh, but my God. in Australia, I knew that this was not what I was looking at. But, yeah, the lens cloth. There you go. You had me fooled. God, I, I got so high in Canada once. Oh, my God. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadians. We call it the smell of Vancouver. I got so high once. I did one of those ones where we were kind of like, who was it? It was uh, Kevin Smith. He talked. He did a great story about smoking weed with uh, Snoop Dogg once. And he's, he's like, and I looked at Snoop. I'm like, how high are we are we trying to get? Because <laughs> the weed just kept coming around and around, and it's Snoop, so it's like weaponized. And he's like, I remember being so high, and I was like, I don't even know where I am anymore. <laughs> oh my god, it was horrible. It was supposed to be fun. It was awful. <laughs> Were you going back in time? Were you having time trips? And it was very odd. Feel your limbs. It was very, very odd. And I was, you know, I was on holiday. I only met these people that day. So I'm in a room with strangers, you know, and I'm, I was just holidaying by myself at the time. And I'm like, that's what? not a good, no. What's going that's on? Not, that's not the moment. That's not the moment, Asher. Why is the, what's the wrong money in my wallet? I can't get a cab. What's this? I had Canadian dollars in my wallet. I can't, I've got no money. How am I going <laughs> to? Horrible. What and is this monopoly money? Who are it's all It's terrible people? and freezing, you know, and I, I could have died because anyway, it's a long story. Anyway, I hope so, the Canadians looked after you. Did it, they look after you in the end? Of course. Every Canadian I've ever met has been nothing but delightful. They're always uh, nice. They are. Most of them. They really, really are. It's a great country. It's the best. You're amazing, Tara. Have a lovely evening. Thank you so much for your time. And, Thank uh, you for the time. Sure. It was a delight to chat with you. You're the best. Have a good one. Bye-bye now. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Tara Moss. You can find her on Twitter. She is at Tara underscore Moss. Her latest book is called The War Widow. It's out right now. You can buy it. 
probably on your phone right now. You can scroll around and click some buttons and have it instantly because that's the world we live in. If you want cracking ring, get on board. Thank you very much, Tara, for organising time to be with me, um, especially in such precious time with your family after the in-house isolation where you couldn't be together. Extraordinary listening to that story. Thank you very much to my audio producer, Andy Ma, who made this show. Thanks to Rachel Barrett, the uh, show producer and producer of my life, who amuses me every day with the Spotify songs we share back and forth. It's great. Um, we share the songs that we're listening to in the mornings with the kids, and it's great. She threw some Herb Alpert my way today, which is sick. If you haven't listened to some Herb Alpert in a while, get on to some Herb Alpert. Thanks as well to Hayley Van Spagna um, for rock- rocking the socials, Mel and Carla for making me look fantastic. Audrey, my dear wife, just for being incredible. Uh, Georgia, who looked after the baby a fair bit this week, and it's been really cool, even though she's in the middle of exams. And the band Amon Amarth for helping me lift heavy things this week. If you don't like Viking metal, do not listen to Amon Amarth. If you like Viking metal, you know who Amon Amarth is. If you would like to like Viking metal, it's a good place to start. Uh, I would start with Twilight of the Thunder God. Wait until, if you're at the gym and you're doing five sets of 12 reps, wait for set five and then fuck that onto your phone and get it in there. And trust me, you'll get a PB. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You've been awesome. Let me know if you need anything. Send us your email at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram. See you on Friday. Look after yourself. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.